This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is February 11th, 2006, and I am very psyched to have for you this week Steve Bassett. We sat down. We had a marathon conversation, spanned over three hours. We're breaking it up into two weeks for you. This week, we've got a huge portion. We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm really psyched to bring Steve Bassett to you because he was, in a roundabout way, very instrumental in my evolution as a esoteric researcher and um, journalist, what have you. The X-Conference opened the door for me to get into the UFO field, and the X-Conference is the brainchild of Steve Bassett. He put it together, and it's where I met a lot of the great people that you've heard on Banal of America Audio already. Um, more people that you're going to be hearing in the future. It's pretty much where I broke into the UFO field was at the X Conference, and then subsequently the next year at the X Conference 2, and hopefully we'll bring you something crazy for X Conference 3 to try and up the ante a little bit. But anyway, Steve Bassett, he created the X Conference. He's with us this week. He happens to be on the forefront of the disclosure movement. Let me give you a little bit about him, because he's not just the founder of the X Conference. He's done so much more, and we're going to talk about that today. Steve Bassett's a political activist, founder of Paradigm Research Group, executive director of the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee, the XPPAC, author of the Paradigm Clock website, and a political columnist, commentator, and former independent candidate for Congress. He is the executive producer of the X Conference. Presently, he is the only registered lobbyist in the United States representing the extraterrestrial-related phenomena research activist organizations, and XPPAC is the first political action committee to target the political implications of extraterrestrial-related phenomena. Between April 19th and November 5th, 2002, he conducted an independent candidacy in the 2002 congressional campaign in the 8th District of Maryland. It was the first instance in which a candidate on the November ballot in a federal election openly addressed the matter of an extraterrestrial presence and the government-imposed truth embargo. He knows exopolitics better than anybody, so I'm really psyched to bring him to you this week on Banal of America Audio. This is a long time coming, this interview. I've been waiting to do this one for a while and hoping to get Steve Bassett on the show mainly because of how much he inspired my work and how he sort of opened the door for me to get into ufology, and also because he seems to know what's going on. He has his finger on the pulse of where the UFO disclosure movement's going. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was conducted on January 16th, 2006. Steve Bassett, part one of two, on Banal of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to welcome my guest, Stephen Bassett. He's a political activist, lobbyist. He's the founder of the Paradigm Research Group, executive director of the Extraterrestrial Phenomenal Political Action Committee, XPPAC, author of the Paradigm Clock website, and political columnist, commentator for numerous websites, publications, and radio programs. Presently, he's the only registered lobbyist in the U.S. representing the UFO ET research activist organizations. And personally, for me, Steve Bassett is, uh, you can kind of, um, if you want to give him some credit or blame, I guess, for 
inspiring me to get into the UFO field uh, through BanolaAmerica.com. I attended the first X conference and obviously subsequently the second one. And those were sort of my uh, coming of age into the UFO field. And if it wasn't for the X conference, I'm not sure if I'd even be doing this. So he, he inspired me to get going in the in the whole field and all that. So I owe him a debt of gratitude for that, and I want him on the show for a long time, so I'm really psyched to uh, bring him here for everyone to listen to, and hopefully I can pick his brain some and, and learn some more about what's going on in the UFO field. And uh, Steve Bassett, thanks for appearing on the show. Sure, Jim. I'm glad to be with you, and uh, appreciate what you're doing, and uh, you know all the work you're putting on that website. I think you're, you're ahead of the curve, and uh, I think it's going to have an impact. Thanks, thanks. Um, well, why don't we start off with uh, just your background, your bio, um, you know, how you came to become a part of, of the field and, and how you got to where you are today a little bit, you know, so people can get to know you a little bit. Well, briefly, um, I entered the field in uh, January of 96. Uh, I'd always been interested in the subject uh, and the phenomena, but I was doing other things. But at some point, I just, just really wanted to get in. I wanted to get involved in something that truly interested me that I, had, that I felt I had a passion for. So relatively late in life, at 49, I made the decision that this is what I was going to do. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure how I would contribute, but I figured that would emerge in time. Uh, I, I began uh, at um, well, the door that I went through was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, at the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research that John Mack had created, the late John Mack had created there as part of his ongoing uh, Center for Psychology and Social Change. And Peter, as it's called, was doing research in abduction phenomena, contact phenomena. John, of course, wrote about it in uh, his book, Abductions, Human Encounter with Aliens, and later, Passport to the Cosmos. I spent four months there. It was very interesting, uh, really excited, exciting time for me, uh, and uh, well, I enjoyed it. It wasn't, it wasn't it. it, it, it the abduction field per se, and the sort of the academic approach was not, was not it. But I did figure out what it was, uh, and it was in, I guess, uh, April, May, late April, early May of. Uh, I'm in May of, of 1996. I, I was in the office there, and, and I was thinking through my life and my interests and so forth. And my my background in Washington D.C. My family had lived in that area for many many years, going back to the 30s. So I knew Washington pretty well. Yep. And it just came to me. Uh, I would engage the politics of this issue up front in an upfront way, just straight out. Basin to go to from in Washington D.C. because it really hadn't been done. Uh, there had been efforts to engage the Congress over the years. There had been obviously things happening in that town, one form or another, but nothing formal, nothing out in the open. Uh, and uh, that would be my my uh, niche. Okay. So I went down there, uh, set up a quick office, and. Registered as a form that created the Paradigm Research Group, which was the entity, the main entity which I've operated under for the last 10 years, and, and uh, registered as a lobbyist for some organizations that I've contacted, such as Skywatch International and some others. Over the years, it's changed. Uh, some have gone, some have come, but this registration was in some ways symbolic and in some ways um, quite real. Uh, uh, and important. 
important because it was kind of a, a kind of announcement. It was kind of a statement to the political media there and to the political uh, operatives in town, of which there are legion, yeah. that this issue was part of the mix. It was it was real, and uh, immediately I got attention for, for doing this. The political press uh, track all the lobbying registrations because they want to know who's lobbying for who and why and what's going on. This is, this is news for them. Yeah. And I got interviewed by the Washington Post and others and it began to attract attention. Okay, fine. That was, that was a good beginning. And um, from there, I, uh, given the resources I had, which were always limited, uh, I did everything I could to put the issue in a legitimate, out in the open context as if it were like any other issue. Yeah. Uh, whether it be environmental problems, war, peace, uh, education, what have you. And that eventually led me to create, a couple years later, the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Political Action Committee, XPAC, which was the, the first and still the only PAC that's uh, devoted to the issue of the extraterrestrial-related phenomena. Uh, and I created a website for Paradigm Research Group. I created a website for XPAC. And at the Paradigm Research Group, I, I uh, authored the, the Paradigm Clock, which was designed to sort of raise awareness of our progress towards a, a full disclosure or disclosure by the, by the American government, the U.S. government, about the presence of these extraterrestrials. And that so it was a political tool, certainly, um, and mostly the media. That resided at one website, XPAC at another website. Then uh, the next step was uh, really to uh, engage in the election side of this thing. And I saw the opportunity to maybe get on a ballot in the congressional race in 2002. Uh, the campaign was called uh, Disclosure 2003. I had a feeling that disclosure could take place in 2003. I thought it was another window of opportunity. Um, and I was able to get on the ballot because of the hard work of a lot of volunteers who went and gathered like 5,000 signatures. And I was an independent candidate on the ballot with the, the Democrat and Republican candidates. Uh, I think the Republic, Republican candidate was Connie Morella, uh, and the Democratic candidate who won was uh, Christopher Van Hollen. It was the first time they were aware in history that a congressional candidate on the November ballot was speaking in debate with these other candidates openly about the ET presence and the need to get these issues out. Uh, that had never happened. So again, the this, this is the, uh, you can see how this is following a certain pattern. Yeah. And then, then after that, uh, I, I founded the X conference, which was held, the first one was held in 2004 in April, and the second was held in 2005 in April. And the X conference stood for the, uh, the first annual Exo Politics Expo. And that conference was, was in Washington, it was held initially held during an election year, presidential election year, and it was intended in any way possible to to bring the issue again to the attention of the political media, the, the, the Washington insiders, uh, and so forth. So that has been, in a nutshell, my ten-year passage here. Um, and the other thing I will mention very quickly is, is that one of the key aspects of, of, of this work is, is developing new language for people to understand what is going on and, and uh, the political arena. We, we initially referred to the politics of UFOs. Yeah. Um, eventually, though, I, I, I came to very strongly believe that the acronym UFO needed to be uh, put to bed, retired, 
Yeah, uh, given a, uh, a gold watch and a going away party and uh, told to go to Florida to a nice, nice, uh, you know, rest home and, 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 and get out of our, our lives. Yeah. So we, uh, the next concept was, we merged the concept of disclosure. I think I certainly played a role in that. It was you know, part of my websites going back to 96. And disclosure was developed as a, as a, as a specific term with a capital D, meaning the actual event, the day that the, 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 the United States government announces and acknowledges this ET presence. Yeah. And we had the politics of disclosure, the process of disclosure. And then in 2002, exopolitics was a term that emerged from the work of Alfred Weber now based out of Vancouver, Canada, and I immediately embraced it. Uh, and exopolitics is the term now that refers to the, the, the whole whole shebang, uh, the phenomena, the government's posture, the people's reaction, the process of disclosure, and eventually the post-disclosure issues and uh, processes which will be taking up our time. So it is a political journey. It was all spent primarily in Washington. Eventually, I started speaking around the country. I, did, I have spoken also uh, out of the country in Italy. I hope to do more of that. Uh, and it's been a, a, a process of raising public awareness, political media awareness, congressional awareness, uh, also against the executive branch to some degree. And there's so much more to be done. And the only real limitation to Many projects and many more effort, much more effort in this is simply funding, which has always been lacking, and hopefully that will change. Awesome, thanks. Well, that's that's quite a uh, that's quite a bio. Um, well, let me start with uh, the, one of the first points I wanted to make, and this was just concerning the uh, the Paradigm Research Group, and, and I was listening to your uh, keynote address from the first X conference, and uh, you'd said that. Uh, one of the things the Paradigm Research Group has been trying to do for many years is to show respect, acknowledgement, and raise the level of self-image in this field. And by the, by the field, you mean ufology. And uh, I, I really appreciate that and have a lot of respect for that. And, and some of the things that you guys had done was to, uh, for uh, that first year, you, you brought some of the women who were speaking there to speak on being women in ufology. And then um, last year, one of the things I saw was... Um, the tribute to all the great ufologists who have come and gone uh, in the field. So um, maybe you can speak a little bit to, to what Paradigm Research Group is, that aspect of that, of, of your organization um, that aims to sort of like raise raise up ufology and, um, you know, give it a sense of culture. Well, this is, this is a, a very um, important aspect of the work of Paradigm Research Group, which is the, the Paradigm Research Group, the, 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 the principal organization, the main one. Its, its role has been to support the field. That, that's the way I viewed it. It turns out that the principal way that that's happening is through the political process, trying to get political resolution, but it's not limited to that. It's trying to assist the field in any way that it can. It's not a research organization, oddly enough. It's the Paradigm Research Group. The group, in that case, refers to the organizations that it tries to assist, which include research organizations, but also activist organizations. So it's kind of a facilitator, a bridge, a catalyst, that type of thing. Um, and one of the very important but somewhat complex concepts that I've tried to develop and bring awareness to is that um, this issue is, is special in some ways as, as opposed to a, a, any number of other uh, activist uh, and advocacy uh, movements, processes, 
that we're that we're familiar with, and that unlike any other issue, and I, you know, I include that even the women's right to vote and uh, segregation, you know, uh, in America, the government, for pretty clear reasons, began an extremely comprehensive and expensive effort to control, suppress, and contain uh, the matter of the extraterrestrial presence and the public engagement with, uh, with that issue going back to the 40s. Uh, they, they piggybacked it on the Cold War um, uh, efforts uh, using the same structures that were built to deal with the Soviet Union and, and, and the emerging Cold War, which included the National Security Agency and the CIA and the National Security Act. Uh, they uh, ran the gamut of activities that we often think of in terms of dealing with foreign uh, nations and foreign counterintelligence. They ran, again, they ran that same concept with the American people itself. And what they did, they did a lot of things, but the, the way I like to describe it is that they created an intellectual ghetto. Now, this is something that governments have been doing and empires have been doing for thousands of years. If something needs to be contained, one way that you do it, you keep, one way you just simply kill everybody. Right? So if you, there's an element within your, your society that you don't like, you just kill everybody so that, and then you don't have to worry about it. And that, that was not uncommon either back you go back far enough. But that's, that's something that doesn't work so well now. Though the Nazis gave it a shot. Um, the, the idea is you take the people, or maybe even the idea, and you create it, you, you, you assign it to what amounts to a ghetto. Sometimes it's a physical ghetto and you build real walls around it and you force the people to stay in there. Or an intellectual ghetto, where if you ridicule the, the concept, you associate it with things which which attract ridicule, and then you build walls, so essentially build walls around the ideas and the people. In this case, the walls would be made of ridicule, of shame, embarrassment, and, and frequently we refer to the ridicule curtain. And so that process began very early. Uh, it really got underway, I think, after the Robertson panel, which was held in, um, I think, the Robertson panel was 50. something 
a sky or a police officer or anybody else. You, it's a UFO thing. You're a UFO person. You're in a UFO ghetto. And the effect of this was extremely um, uh, good. I mean, I say good. It was it, it, it was effective. Yeah, right. It was it was very effective. It's not good for us. And not good, not good for the people who want the truth in this matter, but good for the government's uh, cover-up, or I call, prefer to call truth embargo. So by the time I entered the field in 96, uh, this, this intellectual ghetto was well-established. And there was – the effect is multifaceted. First of all, the people inside the ghetto, which, again, the walls are which are not brick and mortar, but – Essentially, what we call a ridicule curtain. Yeah, they they had they suffer a lot. Uh, it affects their lives. It puts pressure on their their families and relationships. Uh, it, it cuts them off from funding because the the universities and the research uh, grants are not available. Foundations won't touch them. Uh, so they operate have to operate in their own money uh, until they run out and then. Well, what they do, I don't know. And it's not comfortable there. Uh, and then there's a high level of frustration. You feel uh, withdrawn. You feel cut off. And, and before you know it, you start turning on the people in, the, in there with you. Yeah. You can't take on the government. The government has got you contained. And so you turn on each other. Uh, you blame each other for the failure to advance this. And, you know, you, you uh, over uh, uh, hyper react to their mistakes, um, and it, it gets unpleasant in there. So it was clear to me when I entered the field that there was a lot of damage being done to these people, and uh, the field was was suffering because of that. So several things. One was that I felt that, and, and furthermore, there, 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 and not surprisingly, there were those who would come to the field new. In other words, they weren't in the ghetto yet. They were on the outside that they were thinking about getting involved. Yeah. And, and they would take the approach that, boy, all these people are messed up. Uh, if we could just get rid of them, right, if they would just go away, if we could just kind of purify the ghetto, then, oh, the curtains, wall of, the wall of ridicule would come down, and, and the government would embrace us with open arms. And so they'd come in with this approach, and it's not an approach that I, I, I embrace. I, I think it's the wrong one, and I, and I think it just does more damage. Um, so... I felt that, one, we need to pull people together to the extent possible, and we need to acknowledge them. In other words, they're not going to get any medals of freedom from the president. They're not going to get any Nobel Prizes. They're not getting Pulitzer Prizes for their writing. So we need to acknowledge ourselves. We need to, to provide acknowledgement as much as possible. And, and there were others that did this, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I tried to elevate it to, to a little higher level and, and take in uh, more aspects of the work, uh, the PRG awards, the courage in politics, courage in journalism, all the thing, that kind of stuff. So these the awards that were given at the X conference, and and the statement that PRG is trying to to acknowledge these people is is, is part of the process of counteracting this ghettoization of the issue and buck people up so that they're more people able to eventually pierce that ridicule wall which is essentially in their minds. In other words, uh, whether you're on the inside or the outside, those, the, the ridicule curtain is in your mind. Uh, if you believe, if you accept its presence and you react to it as a, as a legitimate barrier, then in fact, you will have to deal with that. On the other hand, you can just tear it down.
word now in your mind. So I'm just not going to accept that I'm in this ghetto. I'm going to act as if it isn't there uh, and, and make it so. So that was part of the issue. That, then, then the second thing that I've been doing lately, uh, in fact, I've talked about this. I'm going to be writing about this shortly. Uh, articles will go out to a number of publications. Is hopefully beginning the process in which the acronym UFO is, is retired. It, it's put away. Um, and I recently presented at one conference and I discussed the fact that uh, I believe that the era of UFO, the era of the acronym, the era of the concept of the unidentified flying object and all that that meant, yeah. went from 90, 1947 to 1991. And that was it. It was over. 44 years. Um, and in 91, when the Cold War ended, uh, it made it possible for a lot more inside type people, government people, many retired to start discussing in, in one level of openness or another what they had seen and heard and done. And so that, that witness emergence really began to drive, though it wasn't clear initially in the early 90s. It became clear. The, the exopolitical process, which didn't get named such until 2000, but in fact the era of exopolitics really starts to get going in, uh, in uh, the end of 91. And so the mantle was passed. And so the message I'm going to be getting out, and you're going to be hearing and seeing a lot more of this from me and from PRG, is that the UFO thing needs to be put away, and we need to be talking about extraterrestrials. Uh, and their interaction with the government, if, if, if in fact that was the case, their intentions, what evidence do we have for their intentions, their, their, their craft, their propulsion, um, the implications of all this, and of course the disclosure process, how are we going to get it forward, how is it going to happen, and the whole idea of, gee, uh, has anybody seen another, quote, UFO, it's just irrelevant. Yeah. Simply relevant. Uh, we have all the sighting cases we can ever want. They're in the thousands. Uh, yeah. They're in the archives of the, the research all over the world. We don't need any more. Uh, I mean, five people are welcome to go out and, and film them, videotape them, write up the sightings, interview the people, whatever they can do that. But we already have more than enough. Uh, what we need is what we need is the political resolution of the issue and the information that the government has. And then we also need to raise awareness of the people in the press that this is this is a done deal. This is they're here, okay? That that, that you can include that in a whole range of things. You know, are the are the Arctic uh, and the Antarctic uh, ice caps melting? Yeah, they are. Uh, do we have uh, some ozone holes in the sky? Yes, we do. Is there a war in Iraq? Yeah, as a matter of fact. Uh, is there still racism in America? Yeah. Are there extraterrestrials here? Yeah. Okay. That's the way they need to think about it, uh, which means they need to to, to get. Uh, take the veil off of their eyes, take the blinders off the sides of their heads, uh, snap out of the trance the government has them in. And, I, and, and by they, I mean the, the academics, the press, uh, and the rest of the intelligentsia who were supposedly the intellectual leaders of the country who are, again, uh, buying into either unintentionally or intentionally the government embargo and get on with it. So that's the thrust. And, and my, I believe what has to happen, hopefully what will happen, is the walls of ridicule will come down. The people that have been doing this work, how best they can, sometimes crudely, rough around the edges, 
will start getting acknowledged from the mainstream culture uh, and that they will not be shut out, but rather very significantly included in the whole disclosure process and the post-disclosure world, and that they will interact and work with some of the mainstream people who will emerge very quickly to say, yeah, I knew it all along, but I couldn't say anything because, you know, I just like my job and yeah. my tenure and whatever. And, there, and there'll be a, some sort of a, a, a historical um, uh, transitioning here that is, is fair and honest, uh, as opposed to being uh, uh, duplicitous and corrupt. And that's going to be good for everybody. It's going to be good for history, and I think it's going to be a feel-good thing. So I'm kind of committed to that, and, and it's tough because there's just a lot of resistance. There's a lot of people that, in one way or another, sort of try to convey the message to me that it would be best if all of the the inadequately funded uh, and not necessarily fully credentialed people that have been doing the best they can in this would just all go away so that heavy-duty, uh, academic, credentialed, military, whatever, can come forward and sort of take the mantle from there and, and uh, so forth. And I, I just not, I, I'm not buying it. I, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that. Uh, so I'm committed to having the past and the, and the present and the future come together in, in, a, in an appropriate way so that, it, that the full history of this is properly acknowledged and that the people that have spent lives with this work will will continue to be able to work in it and be rewarded for that. Okay, and then you sort of uh, put a question in my mind here, but you, um, are you concerned that that's the sort of thing that could happen if disclosure, uh, if or when disclosure happens, that, uh, you know, all the great people who've been working on this for so long that they're going to get squeezed out or not get any credit for the work they did? I think it's definitely possible. I think that um, this, this, this event remembers the most important secular event in human history is about to happen. It's the most profound transition the human race has ever gone through. Um, so the forces that will come to bear will be great and mighty. And obviously we know that in our society, as any society, there are very powerful organizations, very powerful people, very wealthy people who have the ability to move very quickly and take advantage of those things which are happening around them. And I know that the day after disclosure, the government holds this press conference, which I anticipate, and it can happen at any time, and says, yeah, we do have vehicles, we do have bodies, there have been engagements, so here is ADT presence here, and we're going to be able to tell you this now, we can't tell you everything. And the day after that, huge corporations are going to be moving aggressively to capture uh, the post-paradigm world. Universities will immediately move to engage the issue and will start beating the drum about how they all always knew about it, but they just couldn't say anything because they just wanted to. They wanted to go along with the government's embargo for national security reasons, and hotshot professors will emerge and become immediate experts on all things yeah. extraterrestrial. And they will... You know, think tanks will be created with big money from powerful people, and they will try to capture and own the post-paradigm and post-disclosure world, and they will view all of the work and the books and the efforts of the citizen science and citizen political movement prior to disclosure as an impediment to their ability to capture the new, new paradigm. Oh, man. And since virtually all of these people 
are broke. In other words, they've all spent everything they have trying to pursue this without funding. They have no money. What organizations they have are shaky and, and if anything, going away. Uh, many have already gone away, like NICAP. They are vulnerable to this kind of suppression. And the American and the people, American people in particular, and I think this this will be translate globally, will be so excited and so focused on this new profound information and all that it means that they won't be paying much attention to that and may not even realize that the people that did all that carried all the heavy water did all that carried all the water and did the heavy lifting are suddenly just being erased in a way from uh from the issue by, by powerful entities who may attempt to apply old paradigm concepts and morality and ethics to the new paradigm world and just, just basically take the same old nonsense they've been pushing for hundreds of years and just take it right into the next, into the next uh, world in a sense and do the same old stuff, only do it with niftier technology and on a galactic scale or or on a more cosmic scale, uh, which would be a disaster for the human race. Yeah. Uh, there are people that want to take war into space. They want to take weapons into space. They they want to engage the ETs and kick their butt and the whole nine yards, uh, which, who knows? Maybe there's a validity to that, but they have no interest in debating that publicly. In other words, they're going to do all this, but it ought to be secret. And so what characterizes this transition is that increasingly there are people in the know who have power and influence who are planning their secret engagement of the new world. And so it's, it's the same old stuff and invariably leads us into trouble. Uh, so one of the reasons I think that the researchers and the activists of the pre-paradigm and pre-disclosure period are viewed as a threat is that they have a lot of information which might make it more difficult for powerful people and powerful organizations to spin the post-disclosure world yeah. and, and, and uh, rewrite history in a way so that it suits their purposes. Yeah. And uh, one reason to make sure that all of the, as much of the previous work is acknowledged and, 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 and introduced and, and kept going is, is to help the people establish a counter response to all this so that they're, they're, they can have some input as to, are we going to go to war with ETs? Are we going to put nuclear weapons on the moon? Or are we going to you know, view the, the galaxy as, as the theological extension of manifest destiny? Yeah. Which is pretty ridiculous, and yet there are people who think this way. I swear to goodness, there are. <laughs> uh, so you can see the kinds of things that are at stake here. I mean, it's really massive. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that's the utilitarian reason behind my concerns uh, about acknowledgement and transition. Oh, definitely, yeah. I totally see where you're coming from, and that's something I thought of, too, is uh, what, what's going to happen to all the old guard when, when things go down. Um, now, you, you obviously, we were talking about you were a lobbyist on the UFO issue or for your own group, so you still are. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, what, now, the general public, and, and I honestly... Um, you know, I only vaguely have an idea of what a lobbyist actually does. So what, like, what, 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 what goes into being a lobbyist for the UFO issue? What kind of stuff are you doing? Is, is it like forming the PRG and the XPPAC, that type of stuff? Is, is what you're doing as a lobbyist or, um, you know, in general? Oh, no, it all is. It's 
all lobbying. Um, the, the American people have a very skewed and, and uh, distorted view of ballot advocacy, uh, and that's intentional. Uh, the powers, the, the powers that be, the elite organizations and so forth have, have gone to some, I think, effort, taking some effort to confuse the people about advocacy because, it, by and large, they don't want them to advocate. They just don't want them to do that. They, they want them to, to keep their mouth shut. Vote for them, right? Buy their products and pay their taxes and keep their mouth shut. They don't want them to advocate. But, of course, they can't just say that because they have constitutional rights to advocate. Yeah. And uh, if you said something like that publicly, someone would think that you were against the Constitution. So what they do is they just sort of pollute the whole uh, advocacy uh, concept with, with, with misinformation, which they do about a lot of things, including extraterrestrial phenomena and much else. Misinformation, disinformation, this is the, these, this is, this is the essence of propaganda, but at a, at a higher level even I think the Nazis had, because the Cold War really honed, both Soviet Union and the United States honed intelligence and counterintelligence skills to a fine edge um, and still use those tools. So what people have to understand is this, that this is an incredibly complex world and they elect representatives to Washington to try and create policy which will produce the best possible world and a country for us. The issues that they have to deal with are legion, scores upon scores upon scores of issues. Yeah. Uh, typical member of the House or Senate is capable of maybe focusing on three or four tops with any depth. Uh, and that's given their staff and, and the Library of Congress, which is at their, at their disposal. But the fact is, is that the well, some might think the budgets of the Congress and Senate, or the House of Representatives and the Senate are, are too big. It's too big. In fact, it's, they're not that large. And, and then the staff and the ability they have to, quote, do research or be on top of the issues that it is, 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 is marginal. Yeah. Now, you want to increase their staff by 50-fold? Maybe. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the way that they're going to, to know what's going on and what, what are the issues, pro-con, the pro and cons of, of every issue out there is that people have got to come to them and tell them this is what is going on as we see it, and this is what we want you to do. And in an ideal world, you'd have both sides being represented equally, or at least both sides certainly represented, and that they'd make their decisions based on principle and on what's good for the country, not based upon a golf junket to uh, the Caribbean. Yeah. But those, all of the all of the lobbying, all the lobbyists hired by anybody, anybody, everybody that wants to hire one, whether you be a rich oil company or whether you be a, an environmental advocacy group in California or uh, a, uh, a group you know, dealing with uh, uh, racial politics or affirmative action or a thousand other things, healthcare, those lobbyists are paid by groups to go to Washington and present the case to congressmen and congresswomen as best they can as to why those interests need to be served. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that and it's absolutely essential. 
Uh, so you've got a million farmers who have a real problem with uh, the price prices of the, their commodities and the foreign trade practices. What are they going to do? Are all, are, are, are all million of them going to go go to Washington and wander around, uh, collaring people and saying, oh, "I'm Farmer Joe"? They have to hire somebody to represent them. And so, what do they hire? They hire a lobbyist. Anybody that they, whether you call them that or not, if they hire somebody to go to Washington to try to get these issues across, that's a lobbyist by definition. And in fact, you have to register as a lobbyist. You can't come in and say, oh, "I'm just an advocate," right? No, you have to register under lobbying law. So. Lobbyists are absolutely critical to the ability of issues by the scores to be presented to our government so that decisions can be made that actually make sense. The fact that there are corrupt lobbyists or those who try to buy people off, so what? There's corrupt mayors. Are we going to do away with mayors? There's corrupt governors. Are we going to no longer have governors of, of, of states? Ridiculous. So, uh, you know, th there are lobbyists. But the problem is, is that the public has been fed has been uh, fed disinformation about this that they actually sort of think that lobbyists are bad and therefore they they, they think oh no we don't want to get together and hire lobbyists because they're bad yeah uh, but 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 the fact is that all of the the major entities in this country do and so. That goes on. It's not going to stop. But I think there are people out there, the average person, that thinks that, you know, someday there'll be no lobbyists, there'll be no political action committees anymore, and, and then things will be fair. Uh, and somehow the government will figure out the right thing to do without information, just you know, intuit it from, the, from uh, the ether. And so this is all ridiculous, but it's very effective for serving the interests of the powerful and influential, and very effective in, in de de empowering, disempowering. The average people and their concerns, and the people have bought American people have bought a lot of baloney in the last thirty years, which is why the country I believe is going to hell. Um, so the the a lobbyist or a political action committee are simply part of fundamental advocacy. So I am an advocate, and I use any tool I can. Now. Key elements of advocacy are this. What are you advocating and who are you advocating it to? What I'm advocating, which is stated on the websites, I think clearly, is the end of the truth embargo against government regarding the, the, the fact of an extraterrestrial presence and the release of information to the extent possible about all of this, early congressional hearings, so that there can be a, this is the balance of powers will be properly uh, served. Who am I advocating to? Everybody that is in a position to influence policy. That includes the Congress, the executive branch, and more importantly, particularly in the modern era, political media. The people that cover all this, supposedly. The press. I advocate to the universities, except they're so obtuse and so walled off to their eternal discredit that it's pointless. Yeah. I mean, it would take big money to, 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 to penetrate the universities. You know, they, they, the universities of America somehow lost their way uh, and got immersed in a swamp of political correctness, uh, tenure worship, elitism, and uh, became really a non-factor in some of the most important issues of our time. 
Uh, and why this happened, I don't know, but boy, they need to fix it real fast because they're embarrassing themselves uh, profoundly. It doesn't mean that they don't teach people um, valuable information and that, 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 that they're not producing the great people who are functioning in our society. I'm not saying they don't serve their basic functions, but but they have withdrawn from the major issues of our time and have also become, I think, some degree dysfunctional. So I don't advocate much to them. Now, I'd like to, and it's certainly not something I would rule out, but I advocate to political media and the fundamental institutions that government, which includes Congress in the United States, and, 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 and there are opportunities occasionally to get out there and engage maybe at the state level, but not much. Yeah. Uh, so that's the way uh, I ask people to look at it. And and, and and I always come back to the same point. If you want to get this country going in the right direction, you need to not condemn lobbyists. You need to hire them. You need not to condemn PACs. You need to create them and fund them. Yeah, right. Uh, and the Political Action Committee is one of the great tools that is available and legal in our country. Uh, there are different kinds of of these kinds of organizations, some of them are, are I think, not as uh, um, healthy. They're, they're, the way they're set up, they're, they're, they're probably more likely to be corrupt. But the basic political acting committee, the, the, the PAC, as we call it, 527, that answers to the FEC. It's an incredible thing. And anybody can create one. And, and, it, and it can accumulate money, virtually unlimited amounts of money, for advocating, uh, limited only by certain basic rules, namely that uh, individuals only, no corporations, American citizens, and a $5,000 annual limit per person. Now, what does that mean? It means that, it means that pick an issue that's pretty important to people like health care. There's 42 million people out there who don't have health care. And they've been trying to sort of deal with that issue, and they've been coming up with half-assed, half-baked ideas to try to deal with this for years, creating this patchwork quilt that's incredibly wasteful and inefficient and impossible to understand. It's a joke. But whatever. Meanwhile, the number of insurgents hangs out there, raising, going up every year, up to 42 million. And most of these people are not, they're not homeless or anything. They're, they're working people, basic people. They just can't afford health insurance. Now, if all 42 million of those people were to say, damn it, once and for all, we want to get, we want to get some proper health care in this country. We, we want to, we want to be a, a leader in the world, not a follower. So we're, we're going to, we want a system that will cover everybody for basic needs and preventative medicine and so forth. And this is going to transform this country. We really like to do this. How are we going to do this? Are you going to advocate for it? Are you going to put pressure on the Congress? Well, how can we do that? Well, you form a political action committee. Yeah, but you need money. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, do it. Everybody, every single person that doesn't have medical insurance coverage, put $5 in the pack tomorrow. Just write the check, send it out. That's about one, that, that's, 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 a, that's a happy meal and a, and a couple of sodas at the McDonald's. Yeah, five bucks. Every single one of the 42 million people are insured can afford $5. Now, that's, that means that that pack, call it the uninsured uh, of America PAC, right? Yeah. Would have immediately 
without anybody in that uh, defined constituency being in any way financially pressed. $220 million, absolutely legal, absolutely appropriate, $220 million. And the uninsured, medically uninsured pack would immediately become a 2,000-pound gorilla, and I guarantee you it would have impact in Washington, and his phone calls would be returned, and it would be getting his point across. But these 42 million people don't believe they can do that. They think it's even wrong to do that. They continue to simply go along with the propaganda. They do not collectively work together. They do not advocate. They do not put their money behind their issue. And so these policies are then made by pharmaceutical companies that have dozens of packs and hundreds of lobbyists and spend hundreds of millions of dollars advocating. And they always get their way. And the people who don't are part of that power group get nothing. Well, what can I say? It's true about medical insurance. It's true about extraterrestrial phenomena. If the people in this country want the truth, they could fund the XPAC to the tune of $100 million tomorrow. If every single person in this country, based on just the low-end statistics, low-end uh, analyses that we've done, who has had a contact experience, which we think on the conservative side is 2%, which translates to 4 million people. Every person has had a contact experience were to say, I want to get to the bottom of this, put $10 in X-Pack, it would have approximately uh, $60 million uh, from just the 2%, which represents 6 million people. Yeah, but that's $60 million. And X-Pack would be a major force in Washington, D.C., and the whole issue of disclosure would probably be resolved in no time. Uh, they won't do it. They, 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 they have been mesmerized and, and, and entranced to think that they can't act collectively and they can't get results from the government. That's why they don't vote. 75% of American people don't vote. They don't think it'll make a difference anymore. They've abandoned their, their social contract, they're abandoning their, their rights and their powers. And then they, but they still are con consternated and, and upset when those who do advocate for policies take the country into directions which are appalling to them. And they get angry and upset. But they don't advocate, they don't act collectively, they don't vote. So in fact, and this is somewhat harsh, but true, they're getting exactly what they deserve. Yeah. Now as a lobbyist, uh, what like what sort of methods do you use? Are you contacting the Congress people, um, sending them like media packages, that sort of thing, and press releases? Um, like what's the methodology sort of thing you do there? Everything and anything that'll work. <laughs> um, try to get try to get the attention of the power brokers type of thing. Um, ex well, you're trying to get the attention of the people who make policy or influence policy. But XPAC, for instance, for years has sent sends out a, uh, what I call congressional alerts. And these are one-page faxes. You don't email stuff. They don't read email. One-page faxes that go to every member of the House and Senate regarding some aspect of the issue. Yeah. And those are archived at the XPAC website, xpac.org. Um, and there have been scores of press releases that have been put out by XPAC and Paradigm Research Group. Those go out to the media and, in some cases, the Congress, depending upon the context of the press release. Uh, and uh, my media list is up to around 5,000. Oh, wow. Now, uh, with the Internet, 
with the Internet, uh, it's possible now to get to an even larger media base, and I'll be using that in the future. Uh, this is important uh, development. Uh, uh, PR Web is an example of a site that for a modest amount of money, your, your press release gets, gets dispersed to huge numbers. And so the, and the Internet is, is an emerging and powerful force for change, and it's certainly going to help advocacy, uh, and already is starting to do that, though it's only just beginning. But you, you get press releases out on these issues. Uh, I have talked to people on the Hill. Not enough of that. I've talked to a lot of reporters, engaged a lot of reporters, um, and tried, you know, constantly to get the issue into the news, into uh, the arena, particularly the arena of, of, of talk uh, show news, talk show interviews, and that type of thing. Yeah. And I have not been a success. I just, I, I've, I've done a, I've personally done a couple of Fox News, but there have been other shows that have been done. I think I've helped to influence that. But some of the real breakthroughs, which didn't happen, just couldn't do it. Tried to get Ted Koppel into this issue for six, seven, eight years. He didn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Finally retired. Um, so, but there has been an attempt to gauge the executive branch uh, one particular time during the administration. So, that is and these are things that can be done without much money, and so that's where I've focused uh, most of my activity. I've started speaking more, and so that gets you in another audience. Uh, and uh, you build a mail list, have, have a mail list, and uh, you get things out that way. And so raising the public awareness is, is certainly part of advocacy, Edu the educational part. Of yeah. Certainly done what I could do there. But there's so much more that can be done. I mean, believe me, I, 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 could, I, could, I, could, I could name 20 projects that could be done with the, if the money was there to do them. So we're, we're, still, we're still nibbling at this thing. Um, but that's, that's what I do. Now, now you, you, can, you can talk about what does is, what is a true lobbyist do, and you can examine the life of a standard K Street lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and, and they have, you know, and they're paid 80 or 100,000 a year, sometimes millions, and they have, you know, they develop you know, important connections and insider connections, and they get in touch with these people, and then they arrange to get a meeting with the uh, with a member of the house, and they'll sit down and they'll pitch them on uh, on what's going on with that organization, and and uh, they have like an influence circle there, and there's quid pro quos and favors that are passed around and that kind of stuff, and and these firms operate in that way, and and uh, there are books about that, uh, but. I'm really in a different arena because I'm not getting paid a hundred thousand dollars a year, and I don't have a lobbying firm behind me that's got heavy-duty connections. And is and is uh, many of these people that come in these firms are former members of the Congress, some are former high-level officials, so they got these contacts. Don't have any of that, right? Because remember, I'm in the ghetto. Yeah, I'm in the intellectual ghetto that was created. So uh, I'm I'm have to operate in other ways. Call them guerrilla advocacy, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, viral advocacy, I mean, this kind of stuff. But, but should we be doing that? Yeah, I mean, if the money was there, look, if I had two or three million dollars, I'd, I'd probably hire a lobbyist. Uh, I might actually hire a firm, right, to to do or work with on this issue and get access that way, um, or any number. I certainly hire a PR person. I'd hire a full-time PR person, that, or at least a full-time consultant. It would be, as I know, the people I could get. Uh, and that has a very significant 
uh, public relations is part of advocacy. Public relations is, are people that know people that can get people at certain places to, to hear and see and do things and whatever, and, and that's part of advocacy too. And uh, But they cost money. The good ones cost good money. So if I had money, I'd definitely get one of those. Again, the number one thing that the government was successful in doing that made it possible, though it seems almost incredible that they succeeded, so that 50, um, 59 years after the crash at Roswell, which got out into the public there for a while, and they had to work pretty hard to keep it under, keep it contained. And everything else has happened. 59 years later, in spite of the fact that half the American people poll, and, and important polls like CNN and, and Time polls and Reuters and others, that uh, they believe that ETs are, in fact, behind the UFO phenomenon. Uh, and uh, that the government's lying about it. In spite of all that, 59 years later, the government has not been forced to acknowledge the presence of extraterrestrials. It's really amazing. How is it possible? Well, the number one thing that they did that made that possible is creating that intellectual ghetto I told you about to a degree that no money was available. Keep the money out. If you can keep... If you can keep the foundations and the universities and private wealthy Americans from funding this issue, then we can play this game yeah. uh, as long as possible. And they did. And the amount of money put into it has been minuscule over a period of nearly 60 years, in spite of the fact the issue is probably the most important issue in the world. That was quite a feat that they pulled off. But you got to, you got to, you got to also say that the foundations and the wealthy Americans that went along with it have a certain responsibility here. They bought the baloney. They ate it. Yeah. They digested it and they pooped it. They, they, they went completely went along with this. Uh, now, whether they knew or in the know, and it was, uh, and, they, and they went along with it because they felt it was a national security matter and it was in the best interest to keep this embargo going, or whether they were just entranced and gullible, whatever, they went along with it. Because now it's also true, and I will, to be fair, that in the early days, certainly as you go back toward the the, the original, the beginning, I think of the era, which is forty-seven. I think it's possible some people were intimidated intensively. I mean, extensively intimidated. They were threatened big time, and I think some people were killed. Yeah. So, uh, so later, as, as things evolve. Just a few hints about that is enough to get a lot of people who are wealthy and have a lot going for them and don't need to, to die prematurely. Yeah. Would rather just enjoy their wealth and their good life would stand down. Uh, and how much of that has gone on, uh, I don't know. In other words, it's the old German approach, right? You go into the town, you, you, you haul 20 people out, you kill five, and then you ask the other 15 to go along with whatever the hell you want, and they sure as hell do. Exactly. Yeah. So I think to some degree there was a certain amount of that. Uh, you know, part of the dark history of America, which is plenty of darkness. <laughs> plenty of darkness there. This, 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 this ain't the, this, the, the shining city on the hill yet. Uh, we have ways to go before we get there. All right. Now, reflecting on your uh, your congressional run in in 2002, it's been uh, it's been about four or five years since then. So, uh, looking back on it, were you, what, what what do you think of it now? Looking back on it, and were there surprises, and were you sort of marginalized as a candidate, not only because you were an independent, but also because of the UFO issue? marginalized, uh, absolutely marginalized, and it's been uh, almost uh, amazing enough, it's been almost uh, four years. Uh, we started uh, the campaign in April of uh, 2002, 
first of all, any non-two-party candidate, any non-Democrat or Republican candidate is marginalized immediately. Yeah. This is another problem we have in the country. Um, we have allowed the two parties to become too dominant. We have tried to create an intellectual ghetto for, for third-party candidates, literally. Yeah. If you're not a Democrat or Republican, you're a kook. You gotta be. You know, I don't care. You got twenty. You got. You got. You got were, were you a World War veteran? Do you have a PhD? Have you got a Nobel Prize? Whatever. You're a kook. You're a third party. You're not a Democrat. You're not a Republican. You gotta be. A, you're, you're nothing. You can't win. And the fact that you're running and can't win shows that you're kind of a. Um, well, you, you're you're Don um, Quixote. All third party candidates are just Don Quixote's tilting the windmills. And so we marginalize them. We won't let them in the debates. Um, and the effect is to limit their ability to bring ideas, even if they can't win, to bring ideas into the arena that, that might be helpful to the country. So we get the same crap from the same parties year after year after year. And because it's the same stuff, and because it really doesn't have vitality to it, and it's so hard to, 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 to um, embrace it, each year the elections get more and more expensive because it's like, and then there was their attitudes. They, they, got, they got a product they want to sell to the American people, and nobody wants to buy it. So instead of simply making the product better, they spend ten times more money advertising it. So the idea is, like, I got a crappy product here, but I'm, instead of spending a million dollars promoting it to you, I'm going to spend twenty million this time around. And if you're going to, and it's going to be so heavily promoted to you that you're going to have to buy it this time. And so the elections get more and more expensive, but the the outcome of the elections become less and less important in some ways, but not always. Uh, and so I call it the politics of money for nothing. Yeah. And it used to be the politics of money, but then it became the politics of money for nothing, which is even worse. So I, I got a good good picture of that when I ran. So I had two, there were two things going on in that campaign of 2002 in the District of Maryland. One, I got to experience what it's like to be an independent candidate in a real election. And that's important because if you're on the ballot, you have the potential to affect the other two candidates. In other words, and my goal was to get 5%. My, 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 my dream was to get 5%. I barely got, I got less than 1%, so I didn't make it. But if I had gotten 5%, if I could have gotten to that level in the campaign, I had the potential to actually influence the outcome. Now, that, that, that will get their attention. And one of the reasons that they, they, they diminish all third-party candidates and, and, and shut them out is, is to some degree, whether they like their ideas or not, is that they don't want them to be able to influence the outcome. So whether you're Democrat or Republican, you don't you don't want a situation where they have the swing votes. So you want them to be as, as minimized as possible so they're there, but they don't get enough votes to matter. But nevertheless, they never can be sure, and occasionally an independent candidate will get to that point where they can influence that. That's a real problem for them. So I experienced what it's like to be an independent candidate. Right. And a lot of, of the 20 or so debates I was kept out of, 16 of them, and a lot of that was just because I was an independent candidate. It didn't matter what my issue was. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that was interesting. And I got a good glimpse of what that was like. And then I got, uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the parallel experience of what, what, what it's like to have the ET issue be your major issue. Interestingly enough, that wasn't a big deal. I, I did not get much... Uh, grief about that. Oh, really? I think it made it a little easier for the Washington Post to ignore me, which they did, or the, and the Washington Times, to my surprise, 
made it a little easier, but they weren't going to go out of their way as an independent candidate anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think the ET issue, occasionally a third-party candidate will have an intriguing issue that will capture the attention of human interest. In my case, I had an incredibly intriguing issue, but the, the papers stayed away from it. I think that was because of the uh, ET factor, because the Post is pretty much a, a partner with the government on this issue. I mean, the Post has gone along with the government on the ET issue from the very beginning, as long as it's existed. Uh, and they need to ask about that. Uh, yeah. Someone needs to really get in the phone. What, what, why, why did you do that, Bob, Ben, Kay, right, Sally? Why did you do that? Uh, they, you know, I'm sure their answer would be, I have no idea what you're talking about. But um, I experienced that, and it was it was great. It was it was great to to know what it's like firsthand. Uh, and I'm able to speak to that when asked. Uh, would I do it again? No, no. Um, if I the only time I'm, only way I'm going to run ever again for Congress will be if I can win. And the only way that's ever going to happen if disclosure takes place and uh, my work gets elevated to a national level. Uh, and, and people say, well, look, why don't you run? Uh, and it would be at a party candidate, candidate and uh, take the issue into, into the Congress and be representative to that issue. So one, one of the things that people forget is that the, the members of Congress are not just there to, you know, represent their every women need, uh, meaning, uh, I, you know, you're my district, you're my representative from my congressional district, and I want you there, and, you know, every thing that I need, you're going to take care of it. Well, I mean, that, to some degree, that is true. I mean, it is true. But, but they're also there to represent the country. Every single person votes for the country, right? Yeah. When these bills come across, they don't say, uh, well, it doesn't affect my district. I'm just going to abstain. You vote for the country. They address issues of peace and war. Uh, and pass the legislation that has potential to have incredible impact globally. So that's a, that they also need people there that can can speak to these issues. And then they can hire somebody on their staff to handle the constituency issues. They do very well, but they focus on these larger issues. Nothing wrong with that. We don't have enough of that. We 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 got we, we need more people in Congress that can stand up there and talk about the big issues, and not. You know, immediately been be voted out of office because oh my God, you talked about a big issue. You're only supposed to care about when my trash gets picked up. So uh, that, that's a narrowing of America's perspective and the voters' perspective, uh, which is again a mistake. So the answer to your question is, um, I got treated badly as an independent. I was given actually a certain kind of a a pass, I think, or a little bit of leeway as a as the ET guy, um, and I was treated. I was never dissed on by the candidates, the other two candidates, and I was in debate with them. And I was in panels with them, and they never in any way diminished me. Of course, they would have viewed me as a non-entity. In other words, uh, don't even focus. I don't even mention the guy because I mean, all I do is give him some prominence. But yeah, they would. They didn't. They didn't attempt in any way to to make fun of that issue. That's they, all, which was notable. Did they engage in the UFO issue uh, when they were in um, sort of debate structures yeah. with you? No. They did get asked. They got asked a couple. There was a couple situations where, because of the nature of the debate, whatever question was asked of one candidate was asked of another. And so I was asked and, and a question regarding my, the, the, the folks of the campaign, and then it got asked of the other people. And they, they, they simply dodged the question. In other words, they gave very uh, neutral, vanilla responses. Um, 
And what about the voters now? When you spoke to some of the voters, what was the general consensus from Were they happy to hear somebody finally saying something about this? Those that knew about the issue were very supportive and, and uh, thrilled that I was doing that, and uh, they would be uh, very excited at times about it. Those that understood the issue, those that were willing to even speak up about it, uh, were very supportive. And I got a lot of supportive emails and letters, and I appreciate that. I, I wanted to do so much more, but again, money. Yeah. I, I think I had, a, I spent a total of maybe nine, ten thousand, eleven thousand dollars on the campaign. That's all I had. Uh, mostly my money, but some, some, some donated money. Uh, nevertheless, I developed a skill for getting the issue out, but unfortunately, and this is just a fluke, uh, at the very point in the campaign in 2002, when the most media would have been focused on the on that election, and it wasn't a, a national. I mean, it was a very nationally followed election. This particular election involving Morella and, and, and uh, Chris Van Hollen was very uh, well followed, more than most. Which is one of the reasons I did it. Um, at the point in which the most focus would have been on the, the campaign, and thus could have drawn my issue into play. Something bizarre happened. Uh, we had two guys show up, uh, a guy named Mohammed and a guy named Malvo, who a, a man and a boy came into the, at the district and started shooting people. Oh. The Beltway snipers. Okay, yeah. And they were shooting people in my district. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. At the store. I mean, they were shooting people at grocery stores where, I, where we've been campaigning. And it was the biggest story in, in, oh, yeah. in, in my memory in, in the Washington area. And it was it was absolutely consuming. Consumed all of the press attention for weeks. Yeah. And so the campaign almost became incidental. It was like, who cares? And that was just unfortunate because uh, a lot of work went into trying to get to that point where there'd be some focus on that congressional campaign and, and I might be able to get some uh, some some awareness factor. For, but instead it was all about two guys killing people from the back of a car, which I must admit has a certain... Uh, metaphorical power to it. It sort of symbolized the state of the world, namely that every time there's an opportunity to focus the world's attention, the people's attention on important issues that could improve their lot, somebody blows something up, somebody starts a war, somebody kills somebody. This happens all, all the time, so it was it was a microcosm of that, and I have a certain appreciation for that. I mean, we operate in the real world. We suffer the real world's vagaries, and I'm no exception. Okay, now, and moving on to sort of uh, the last of your of, of stuff that I want to talk about from your from your background here is uh, the X conference. Obviously, like I said, that was a major uh, turning point for my my evolution as a as a researcher and activist and and writer and all that. Um, what what are your, you obviously this was your brainchild. Uh, how did it come about? You know, and uh, what reflecting on it now, what do you think about it? The logistics involved. Was it surprising to you? What what surprised you? What didn't? And um, you know, as an auteur, you know, as the creator of the X Conference, what did you think of it? It was um, especially a success. Um, the idea was to create a conference, which is. Uh, really reflective of the, the era, the, the new era, which is I call the era of exopolitics, and not the UFO era. Uh, conference that was de-emphasized phenomenology, 
there'd be some there, but really it was a set backseat to documents and government stuff and government posture and cover up and embargo and witnesses and that kind of thing. Uh, modeled in a way, uh, well, the, the, the X theme is the X files, of course, uh, and uh, that 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 was intentional because there's still a lot of interest in the X files. Uh, so the Exopolitics Expo was called that, so I could then nickname it the X Conference. I mean, <laughs> and um, uh, it was a different approach, and it was well responded to. Uh, we had. Given that Washington has not had much experience with substantial conferences of this type, even UFO conferences, and it's a conservative area. I mean, conservative not necessarily politically, but conservative in in people's uh, choices about what how they how they what they do with their time. Um, it's not this way. It's not the Bay Area of San Francisco. Let me tell you, yeah. Washington D.C. So we we had a good turnout, though. We had about. Uh, I get the numbers right. Five fifty paid and six fifty. I think total or six fifty paid and seven fifty. I can't remember. Um, so we had a we had a strong turnout. We had the presentations were fine. People loved it. People were very moved by the conference, uh, and I was very pleased at that. But again, getting back to the ghetto thing, uh, because there was no money, I had to essentially bootstrap the conference with nothing but a credit card. Uh, I compensated for lack of money through labor. I mean, I put a thousand hours, maybe more, maybe thirteen, fourteen hundred hours into this conference. Oh yeah, I was paid nothing for that, and then the conference lost twenty thousand dollars. Oh man! First time around, uh, it just didn't get enough. We needed we needed another hundred and fifty people to break even. Uh, that which would have been a lot to ask, but so I took responsibility for that. But the point is that it, it nearly it just just almost destroyed me. I was wiped out, plus uh, physically, and then financially wiped out. This is ghetto stuff, right? In other words, you, you literally have to make bricks without straw. Yeah. Over and over and over again. But nevertheless, I made an attempt at it um, at, for the next year, and uh, starting with even less money. And was able to pull up a second conference. Not as many attended. It was down around, uh, I think it was like 450, 350, 450, 350 paid, 450. Still plenty of energy, uh, well received, and uh, about half of, about half the speakers were brand new or new to the conference, and yeah, so it went well. And it was sad, but it, they lost twenty thousand too, in spite of the fact that it had been redesigned. So the effect of that was to literally to flatten me financially, and so I've been recovering from that for some time, and I'm still very much in need of funding. So now the third X conference is hanging. Uh, in suspension, um, it's going to take a minimum of fifty-five thousand uh, dollars to conduct the third conference because there are certain things that have to be cleaned up from the first two. Yeah, and uh, I will not attempt to bootstrap the third one. It's, it's simply too much, and uh, can't, I can't physically get to it. So it's it's it, the next conference a perfect example, uh, and, and this has all been repeated before. I mean, believe me, I'm I'm not. I'm not unique here. I mean, uh, throughout the 60-year history of this, nearly 60, people have tried everything they could, whether it's getting a book published or whether having a conference or anything else, and they, they, they have to do it with less. They have to do it, they have to be creative, what have you. Um, and they, they always pay a price. Uh, and that's the result.
operating within the intellectual ghetto that the government created, and I ran up against it there. Um, but nevertheless, I'm glad that it was done, and uh, I want to keep it going. I, I hope that I get lucky here and I get a major backer that will come in for a minimum 55 so that the conference can be run. And I think the third time around it may be financially successful so that it will create what amounts to a self-sustaining franchise for this conference. Uh, it, 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 it will be held in Washington. I, I don't want to hold it anywhere else. It needs to be held in Washington. This is where the power center is. This is where policy is made. This is where this information needs to be injected. It's like an injection of a vaccine or something. It has to be, so some of them have to be injected in a certain part of your body, otherwise they don't work. So this is where the information needs to be injected. Washington, D.C., not L.A., not San Francisco. Um, so the game plan is to do that. And the conference is uh, with film and uh, the all of the Almost all the presentations are available through Lost Arts Media at lostartsmedia.com. Yep, people can buy those presentations uh, on tape. They can also buy sets and what have you. And that's important. More and more, we're able to do that. And there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lectures now that are on DVDs and tapes. Yeah. So the, to the extent, the history of this of this era, and a lot of the people involved are are documented, recorded. Uh, on the huge numbers of tapes. This is, again, in many cases, particularly mine, the people that are filming are not being paid. They're, they're doing it simply to, as a service to maybe make a few dollars selling them later. So, uh, again, it's, it's uh, very much a citizen grassroots thing, and it has been since 47. But it's no longer enough. Uh, this is grassroots, that's all fine and dandy, but, it, but the civil rights movement, every major movement still has got to get big time in order to, to affect change at a global, national level, big, big stuff. You, you simply can't grassroots. You know, the grassroots is good to a point, then you've got to get bigger uh, and more elaborate uh, organizations funding in to complete the process of social change. This has yet happened, not yet happened in this field, which is why today, if you were to contact the United States government and ask them, what is your position on extraterrestrial phenomena, they would say, we no longer investigate such phenomena, and we do not believe that there is any threat to the United States, which is remarkable, but still their position has been for decades. What's remarkable about this is that their formal position, when asked, never denies the presence of extraterrestrials. It only states that they don't investigate it anymore, which is not true. And it doesn't pose a threat to the United States, which we hope is not true. Yeah. And the reason they don't deny it, because they're asked us all the time. I mean, they're, 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 they get queries coming in over the last 34 years. Thousands of queries have come in. So imagine if they were to respond to all these queries by a letter or whatever, saying that there's absolutely no, there's nothing, there's nothing here. There's no phenomena. There's no ETs. Then every one of those things, I mean, they're going to have to eat it. Yeah, yeah. Right? They have to eat every one of those denials. So they don't, which is smart. Right? They dodge it. But that process of dodging should be the tip off to every single thinking person in the country, including every journalist that still has a few brain cells left. But there's something going on here. Because if it wasn't true, the government would deny it flatly. But again, they don't. They don't get it. All right. Now, um,. We're sitting here. It's uh, Martin Luther King Day, actually, on January 16th, so it's sort of the beginning of 2006. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the past year 
in actual politics. Now, I have three particular events that I thought were important. I'm going to work backwards chronologically from them. And obviously, the first one is the big Paul Hellyer story uh, coming out of Canada. Now, I'm not sure how involved you were with that, but I know you were speaking at the same conference as him in Toronto uh, in September. So why don't you enlighten us to uh, your thoughts on the Paul Hellyer story and, and what any insight you can give us into that. Well, as it happens, um, this is, well, this comes under the heading of things happen if you do stuff. Um, if you don't do anything, things don't happen. But if you do stuff, things will happen, sometimes things you didn't expect. Mike Bird, a Canadian, approached me uh, back, well, it was, it was after uh, the, I think it was, it was after the 2005 X conference. It might have been before. I think it was after. About coming to Canada to speak on exopolitics in Toronto. And I said, great, let's do it. Set it up. Get a, get a venue. And the hope was we could make some money, that we could get some funding. Yeah. Uh, well, good. Uh, so there, that's how it began. But Mike, uh, uh, who is very committed to this issue, and uh, wants very much for disclosure to take place, embargoed and started to think more expansively, and he felt, oh, we're going to do this, let's get some other speakers involved, and so he uh, started looking into that. He drew, a, he drew in a, some additional help from Victor Vigiani, who's also a person up there that's interested in this issue, he knows. Victor had other contacts, and so they eventually were able to get, um, well, Paula Harris was going to come over, but she had to cancel, she got ill. Uh, Stan Freeman, who is, of course, a Canadian researcher for many, many years, was invited in. And uh, Richard Dolan, who is very important in this field, as, a, as part of our designated historian. He wrote the book, uh, UFOs in the National Security State. He's tracked down in Rochester, really close to Toronto, so he was invited up. Yep. Myself. Um, so they had a more elaborate event, and they uh, got a nice venue at the University of Toronto. They have a convocation hall there, which is well-known and, and uh, kind of cool venue, nice venue. And off they go to develop this, Colexo Politics Toronto. Because this thing was in play, however, Victor Vigiani noted that Paul Hellyer, who was a well-known political figure in Canada, a very vibrant, active 82-year-old, so he'd been in politics there forever. Who'd actually been the former defense minister in the 60s under Pearson and uh, deputy prime minister under Trudeau. Had formed, uh, I think, two independent parties and had been a member of parliament and, and whatever. I mean, he just did it all. Yeah. That he was that he was a supporter of Alfred Weber's um, initiatives with ISIS, in, 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 uh, the uh, Institute for Cooperation in Space, which is focused on uh, preventing the weaponization of space. And it's, but it's also known that Weber's the founder of exopolitics, so he has kind of a dual life there. Yeah. Uh, that that Bailier had endorsed, uh, I think he produced an endorsement for his book, Exopolitics. So there had been some contact between Weber and and, uh, and Hellier. So he he was sort of engaged, somewhat engaged. So Vigiani approached him and said, "Would you like to speak at this this conference, this symposium?" And he demurred at first, then made the decision, I think, very deliberately, to in fact present. 
he had been getting himself up to speed on the issues and reading some books and what have you. And so, lo and behold, it comes to pass that Paul Hellyer presented for 30 minutes at the Exopolitics Symposium. And because that was announced, and they, they, they put out quite a few press releases, I really attracted the press up there. Uh, the press in Canada is less constrained than the press down here, either because they're not in the trance or because they've not been their, their, their organizations at the publishing level, the ownership level, have not been co-opted by the government, which is to say the United States government's reach does not extend to Canadian press uh, at this time. Uh, so they, they uh, had no problems interviewing Hellier, and he was getting called to interviews, and, and there were articles and papers all over Canada, uh, which is nice to know that there's a country nearby where that takes place. Uh, and in case you finally get fed up with, with what's happening down here. So um, that attracted a lot of attention. And um, I was up there, I gave the keynote, I, I just, I, right after he spoke, I, I followed him. We spoke later at the press conference, uh, and I've got his contact information. I've been in touch with him. And what's more important is that he didn't back down. Um, he continued to take interviews. Uh, and he was on uh, MSNBC. Yep. He was interviewed by Tucker Carlson, of all people. Yeah. He did a Fox News International. And uh, we'll do more, I think. He, uh, at the point, during all this, he was getting married, oddly enough, interesting enough, in 82, getting married. Okay. And then, and then, then the elections were called. Uh, in Canada, the government was dissolved. So, uh, he has been preoccupied with some other things, but I think it's clear that he's committed. He's going to follow this through. Yeah. And so, uh, Hellier is now a player, and with any luck, we'll get him uh, down here to to speak of some things and perhaps get him more involved with the press down here. And that's one of my jobs. That's one of my pro one of my principal projects for this year is Hellier development of the Hellier. Hellier's uh, engagement of the issue and getting it in, uh, into play. Um, the other thing is that um, around all of this is developing now what I would consider a, a relatively substantive disclosure process now in Canada. We, we, we wanted a disclosure process to develop in Canada for some time, and I talked about it. Other organizations have talked about that. And, uh, and there have been some attempts to sort of get it going, and it kind of bubbled around. But now I think it's really underway. So there's a early disclosure movement in Canada, and it's coming from multiple directions. It's coming from Alfred Weber's ISIS uh, Institute's Cooperation in Space and his uh, other project, Peace of Space. Yeah. Uh, he is approached uh, in conjunction with the disclosure project out of Virginia. Here's this, Stephen Greer's operation. Yeah. The Canadian Senate. Uh, to hold hearings. He's, he's approached the government on the concept of a decade of contact. He's going to be approaching, he's also approaching the UN. Um, and uh, others are doing things to engage the Canadian government, including during this time of election, which will be soon, I think about seven days. Um, and I don't know to what extent the issue has been raised in the elections. I, I encourage them to do it. I encourage, for instance, how you hold a press conference. Don't know if that's happened. Um, I'm out in the West Coast right now. I'm a little removed from this. I'm not in a position to simply go to Canada and cause trouble. So uh, I don't know, but, but it's been it's been mentioned once or twice. It would be nice if if it could get really in there. It would be very significant if it became a part of the this congressional not the Canadian election. However, the parliamentary process up there is much different.
they call an election and they hold it in a couple of months. They don't spend a billion dollars uh, promoting every candidate. And they actually have this power change without throwing unbelievable amounts of money down the drain. Uh, you know, I, 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 the parliamentary system appeals to me greatly. If we were to switch to it in this country, I wouldn't. I wouldn't complain, but whatever. Uh, it just doesn't. It, it, it happens over very, very quickly, so it's hard. There's not enough time without a lot of advanced preparation. This is fairly much of a sudden thing to uh, to get into a parliamentary election process like that. So it may not, but still, it's important. So that is the situation regarding Canada and Hillier. Now, also then, working backwards then from the Hellier story, was the Brazilian uh, Air Force uh, release of UFO documents. I'd say that was a, probably a pretty big uh, exopolitical event of the year. Uh, well, it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a release of documents. Um, essentially, A.J. Gavard, who is the leading Brazilian researcher and also the publisher of uh, Brazilian UFO magazine, has been working to try to get the engage the government for some time. And apparently, there's some sort of a breakthrough. And so with, with absolute certainty, the Minister of Defense of Brazil, and this is another now Minister of Defense that has taken a step. Yeah. Uh, current, I suppose, former. With, their, with the sign off the Minister of Defense, the Air Force sort of got in bed with uh, the UFO research organizations there, of which Gavard was a principal member. And there was an agreement to get together. There's agreement they would release some documents, though that's still in process, and there was discussions about joint investigations. What's important here is that the Brazilian Air Force, by doing this, is giving their imprimatur to the citizen research, something that uh, overall the U.S. government never done. Yeah. Um, they, they've destroyed some some civilian research organizations, but they haven't had, you know, <laughs> given their imprimatur. Uh, and... That is non-trivial, uh, and one of the most important things that anybody needs to know about that has to do with something I I love to mention. It's just I just for some reason I'm just going to kick out of gun camera footage. Again, the obvious sometimes is right in front of your face. You don't know it. For 50 years, craft have been flying all over this planet in this sky, all over the planet. And nations have been setting up planes to intercept or investigate. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Right? Everybody also knows that going back to the war, I mean, the planes are fitted with cameras. Not all, but many. Combat planes are fitted with cameras so they can record what happens in combat. That's where we got all those films of zeros being shot down and, and uh, attacks on... Japanese uh, ships and so forth. Yeah. In the modern area, though, the cameras became even more important in that as we evolved into these, well, it's Cold War certainly evolved into two camps. We had nations on one camp, nations on the other camp. You have all these countries with, with air forces and military planes, and, and uh, everybody's a little twitchy, and so anything turns up in anybody's skies, so they send planes up to investigate it, and they they always film it. They've got to have cameras in those planes so they can record what they saw. And if an event takes place, something gets shot down, they have evidence as to what happened to avoid national incidents, international incidents. Yeah. So these cameras are incredibly important. And so you've got all these craft, uh, and you've got planes being launched to intercept them, 
Did anybody not think that they're filming that? Did anybody not understand that the gun cameras that they put in these planes are filming these intercepts so that when they get up there and they, they see these craft and the craft maneuver away from them, what happens if they have that footage? Every country in the world that has an Air Force reasonably sophisticated, which is virtually every first world country and most of the second world countries, including Brazil, including Mexico, yeah. they have this footage and they keep it. And uh, it's notable in the United States that while there's been some success in getting documents from this agency and that agency through a FIA request uh, from time to time, nobody can get the gun camera footage. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Then he's going to get released. You can fire all the FOI requests you want till hell freezes over. You're not getting that gun camera footage. Because the gun camera footage from the planes of these nations in and of itself completely confirms would of course we know to be true. Which raises the question, why do these countries sit on this stuff? Why do, why do, and that's an interesting question. And it has something to do with the fact the United States has uh, got more nuclear weapons than anybody else, got more money than anybody else, won the Cold War, won World War II, and everybody sort of feels indebted to us, something like that. So Brazil's got that footage. So does that mean the elements of the Brazilian government know there's ET, of course? So when the Brazilian Air Force put that informator out there, that's a message that's being sent back to the United States that we're getting a little impatient with this embargo that you've been maintaining for now 59 years. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I never miss an opportunity to remind our government of that. And in fact, I'm about to send out new reminders of that within the next couple of weeks, both in press release and in congressional alerts. Awesome. Reminding them again that there are nations out there that are, right? Losing patience, and it's very possible in a thousand years from now, some kid will open up their history book in class, and they'll be dis they'll be discussing this incredible era in human history, and they'll be talking about how Brazil was the first nation to announce to the to the world that in fact there's extraterrestrial engaging, and they showed footage of some of these craft maneuvering in front of their cameras, and God knows what else they may bring out, and the United States would be a backseat participant to all this, throughout kicking and screaming into the new paradigm, moaning and whining and crying. Yeah. Uh, and that will be the history a thousand years from now. Or they can get with it and uh, take leadership position here. Uh, so you're getting a glimpse again of, of advocacy, one, another little component of advocacy. Now, um, all right, this one kind of came up, actually, it's not in the list of three, but uh, what you're talking about here is the Brazilian thing sort of jogged my memory. What about uh, this India Daily thing that's going on online where there's constantly UFO stories coming out of India Daily? Um, I don't know if you're too aware of Oh, I'm aware of it. Okay, well, uh, well what do you think's going on with that? Because it's very intriguing. It is. It is intriguing. Well, first of all, a couple of points. One, India's got a billion people. Actually, it's got more than a billion people. So it's a pretty important country. <laughs> you know, isn't that the country where all the cows just wander around in the street and poop on the sidewalk because they worshipped or something? Well, that's true. I mean, they have their problems, but they got a billion people. And they're smart. They're very smart people. Uh, and which is why they're doing all our software for us now. And we're shipping jobs over like crazy. Uh, they have a military. They have an air force. They have gun camera footage. They have some advanced technology programs. And they have nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, so, India, I'm sure, fully intends to be 
part of the post-paradigm world and not just some overpopulated uh, backwoods country, you know, second to the fiddle. But it does have its hands full. With a billion some plus people, they have enormous infrastructure and uh, domestic needs. Uh, it's still poor country per capita. And nevertheless, all this other stuff's going on, and you know that India's paying attention. So, not too long ago, all of a sudden, this online entity called Indian Daily starts putting out all these stories related to ET phenomena, cosmos, and other tangential stuff. And there's two things you can say about it. It's almost tabloid, but not quite. Yeah. Some of these things have a tabloid quality to them. The kind of short story that you might, and it's all internet. I have to, I'm not aware that any daily even has a, a uh, paper version, but it may. I don't know. In fact, I need to look into this. Yeah, I don't know. I've been trying to find out information about it, but I, I'm coming up blanks. But these internet stories, which are universally fairly short, not long, are the kind you think, kind of about the length that you might read in an Enquirer or Globe or, or something. Which occasionally we'll write. Now, even you get down below the level of Enquirer and the Globe and you get to the uh, World News Daily and stuff, it's all, it's all made up. It's all silly. But it's fun. I mean, I, mean, I think the people that work for World News Daily and these other total, what I call the absolute low-end tabloids, have the most fun of anybody. So it's not that level. It's more the level of a story that might turn up in the Globe. However, not quite. Um, there's a... There is... A level of sophistication to most of these stories, which is above the level of a tabloid. Yeah. Um, and occasionally some of them seem too far out there, but not many. And most of them are out there, but not that far. And it raises the question, what's going on? Um, I think that if, and I'll know more, I think, in time, uh, I do believe that India is behind it. I think that the government of India is behind this. I think that this is their way of of, of getting in play, uh, of, of marking some territory here, letting the world know without... Um, Ruffling any feathers, meaning this. The Indian government, if it wanted to, could put out government releases about what it thinks about all this. But if it did, it would, of course, be ruffling the feathers of the United States. Yeah. And you know the situation in the Middle East and in that area. It's, it's a mess. Oh, yeah. You got your Pakistan-India problem, they get their nuke, and then you got your Pakistan-Afghanistan issue, and then, of course, you've got Iraq. So, and India's got a lot of other problems, and it desperately needs lots of money from us. So, we, so, so for the government to start putting out very provocative uh, releases of any kind, India knows anything about anything, which could be create political problems short-term for them. So what I think they've done is authorized that that's interesting information, provocative, Possibly some to sell info in there, but also some stuff that points to things that they are working on or know about is being released in a kind of quasi-tabloid um, fashion through an internet entity like the City of Daily uh, in a way of letting us know, the U.S. know, that, you know, we're not totally 
here, and we're not we're not completely willing to be utterly silent about this. It's, it's like a little message. That's kind of the way I see it right now, uh, and uh, I enjoy them. They're kind of cool, and I hope they keep doing them. Uh, and at some point, I'm gonna, I have them all. I'm gonna collect them and I'm gonna review them all, kind of in, 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 in a group. But uh, again, I think it points to it points to very possible development there within India, uh, which is not surprising. I mean, they're one sixth of the world's people. Yeah. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. Big thanks to Steve Bassett for appearing on the show. He'll be back next week. We're going to talk about the ABC UFO Peter Jennings special that aired last February. Uh, we're going to talk about what some of the big 2006 exopolitics stories may be. And we're going to talk about, in depth, the roadblocks to disclosure. The various scenarios that many people paint as to why disclosure cannot or will not happen. Steve tackles them head-on, one by one, and gives us his perspective on why disclosure is possible and will happen. And all that is next week on Banal of America Audio, February 18th, 2006. Be there or be square. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron and R. Lee of BanalofAmerica.com. They produce the columns at BanalofAmerica.com. If you haven't checked them out yet, you're missing out they're producing some top-notch stuff. I hope you check that out. Those are at banalofamerica.com, weekly columns. Also, my weekly columns, Banal Report. I track esoteric radio like it's my job. Feature articles, satire. You will laugh. I'm telling you, you will laugh when you see these pictures in the hot news section. Check those out at banalofamerica.com. If you're a frequent banalofamerica.com visitor, Click the PayPal button. Throw some money in the bucket. Someone did last week. Big thanks to you, sir. You know who you are. Thank you very much. Now that the first guy has gotten out of the way, what do you say? You want to be the second, the third, the fourth? Start throwing some money in the bucket. Click the PayPal button. It would make my day. Help keep Banal of America Audio and BanalofAmerica.com up and running. We would really appreciate it. And now that I got the plug out of the way for BanalofAmerica.com, I want to thank all you great listeners out there for checking out the show, for downloading the show, sending me the emails, posting it on the message boards and the blogs. Totally appreciate it. I'm so happy to hear from many of the listeners who are sending me emails saying, oh, I love this interview, I love it with this guy, or, or the one from a couple weeks ago was really good, or I just found the interviews and I really liked one from you know back in September or something. I'm getting a lot of those emails, so people are slowly but surely discovering the esoteric insanity that is Banal of America Audio. Big thanks to all you great listeners out there. If you haven't checked out the archive, we've got tons of episodes now. Enough to keep you busy through the weekend. If you're snowed in or working out at the gym, download them, put them on your iPod, bring them to wherever you're going to go, long road trip, whatever. There's tons for you to dive into there at banalofamerica.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks for checking us out. Come on back next week so we can wrap up the conversation with Steve Bassett. 2006, big exopolitical stories, what might be on the horizon. We take a tour around the globe, various countries, what they may do in regards to disclosure, and of course the roadblocks to disclosure. What are they? How does Steve Bassett see us getting around those to make disclosure happen? That's next week. February 18th, 2006. You'll be hearing from me then. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.